it's about inviting that other point of view. And the more diverse your teams are, the better your business is going to run with the ideas, right? Because you have multiple perspectives of people who say, well, in my neighborhood, we did it this way. In my country, we did it this way. Variety and melting pot of views is radically important for creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship and the success of whatever it is you're doing. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now here's your host, Matt Lyles. I know you've heard me say this before, and here I am saying it again. Innovating to stay ahead is one of the key behaviors that goes into delivering simple experiences. Think about it. Innovation and creativity are absolutely necessary in order to evolve your customer experience or even your employee experience. And you're going to need to constantly evolve the experience. So you're going to need to constantly focus on innovation and creativity. In the last episode, episode 71, I talked with Sarah Frasca on the importance of creativity and innovation and how to build a culture of innovation. And I'm following that episode up this week with another episode on the importance of creativity. Let's consider this part two in a two-part series. So we've established that creativity is important. And we've established that everyone can be creative, not just a select few. But when it comes down to being more creative and really building your creativity muscle, you can only do that through establishing and committing to the right creative habits. And this week's guest helps you learn how to do just that. It's Maria Brito. Maria is an award-winning New York-based contemporary art advisor, author, and curator who was named by Complex Magazine as one of the top 20 power players in the art world. She's written for, and she's been featured in, Entrepreneur, HuffPost, Elle, Forbes, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, and lots of other outlets. And she's the host of The Sea Files with Maria Brito on PBS. And Maria's the author of the best-selling book, How Creativity Rules the World. In her book, Maria helps you overcome limiting thoughts and dispel those traditional myths that we tend to have around creativity. And she helps you and your team learn how you can cultivate the habits, the actions, and the attitudes that inspire creativity and innovation. So here it is. Here's my interview with Maria Brito. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone who's listening. I'm excited to be here today. I'm excited too, because I love this topic. I love the topic of innovation and creativity. And I love dispelling a bunch of the myths around creativity, how, you know, it's not just for a select few people, it's for everybody. Everybody can do this. And so thank you and congratulations on your book, How Creativity Rules the World. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a pleasure 
to be able to bring this message to the world and I'm thrilled to discuss with you today. So let's rock it. Let's do it. Before we get into the book, I would like to talk about your career for a moment. You had a big career transition, career shift. You wrote that you were once a miserable corporate attorney. I was thinking about my previous career. I was a corporate marketer. I wasn't miserable. I loved my job. But still, yes. So I was a corporate attorney and I worked in big law firms in New York City and I was pretty miserable. It took a long time for me to actually decide that I wanted to quit because I practiced for about nine years and that's a long period of time. And the truth is that as a child, I was a performer, a singer, a dancer, all sorts of artistic things that I love doing. And I was very good at it. And when this whole thing became a little bit more serious and I started getting callbacks and I was getting bands asking me to tour with them and record labels and things like that, my parents said, no, that's not happening. So I ended up by default going to law school because I didn't like blood. So I was not going to be a doctor. I didn't really like math. So I wasn't going to be an engineer or anything like that. But I really had a love for reading and writing. So I ended up going to Harvard Law School. And then, as I said before, I practiced corporate law in New York for a long time and I hated it. And I plotted my exit. I thought about it a long time and I said, well, I'm in my 30s. I think I was 32 or 33. And I just wanted to do something fun with my life and make money too, obviously, because it was not just fun. Anybody who lives in New York City knows that you cannot just have fun here. That's right. So I decided I wanted to work with contemporary art and I opened an art advisory. And so what an art advisor does is I build art collections for people who want to have the aesthetic value and the emotional value of living with art, but at the same time is an asset class. So people invest in art because it's part of their strategy too of diversifying their assets. And in the process, I grew a seven-figure business from scratch because I didn't know anybody in the art world. I didn't know anybody in the background of arts or anything. And so I just had a passion for it. And I went for it with a very unique proposition that was about demystifying the art world. And so it's been 13 years that I did that. I I quit the horrific job and I'm very thrilled with what I do. I have had to refine and pivot my business many times because that's actually the part of any entrepreneur who is creative that people have to embrace, that you have to pivot and shift many times. And so the culmination of this 13 years as a business owner and working with extraordinarily creative people, both as artists and entrepreneurs and business owners who are my clients, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, filmmakers, Broadway producers, I've put together this book, which is not for artists, it's for anybody who want to incorporate these habits and practices in their lives and maximize the power of their ideas and take them to the next level, which is what entrepreneurs do, basically. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, and when we think about creativity, we usually resort for artists or those special entrepreneurs that have done really, really well. Essentially, we think creativity is just for that select few people. But 
you say that that's a lie. It is a lie. So tell me more about that. Yes. Well, creativity is an innate part of any human being, and we are born with that. In fact, I quote in my book a variety of different sources, including a study that was conducted many years ago in the 70s by a researcher, a PhD professor, Land, who's already passed away and what he did. Nobody had ever retested or done anything like he did because it was not necessary. And what he did is that he tested kids from the same kids from the ages of three until they were 30. And then when they were three, they scored at 98% of creativity for their ages, obviously, but they scored at the highest percentile, everybody, right? And so when the same kids were tested at 12 and 20 and 30, they ended up at the 2%. So basically what happens, and he proved this, is that with formal education, with rules and regulations, with media, with this is the way you do things, this is the way you have to do that, then people end up stifling and and killing their creative thinking. And again, creative thinking is that ability to come up with ideas of value that are relevant and that can be implemented. And so we all want to do that, whether we work at a company or we run our own businesses because it's the only thing really that will make you stand out. You can be super smart, but if you're not creative, you're going to probably be replaced by a machine. And this, mark my words, you can be extraordinarily smart, but if you can't really be creative and reinvent your steps and yourself and the way you do things and the way you market yourself, your business and your skills, it's going to be really hard to survive in a world that moves as fast as ours. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the case for most positions, especially in the corporate world. But that also means that there's an opportunity to be creative in most any position, in most any team in the corporate world, too. Absolutely. For a book on creativity, it looks like you've done a lot of work and you've showcased a lot of data and a lot of research in the book. So that was pleasantly surprising for me to be able to see that because, you know, I'm all about the message of creativity, but the fact that you were able to point to so much data that helps back this up. I appreciate that. Wow. Thanks. I love the studies that you talk about that show that uh, today, even creativity is, is one of the highest skills that employers are looking for. Yes. And, you know, LinkedIn run one of those. Well, it's not necessarily a study because what LinkedIn does is that they are scanning the data within the network and they are constantly checking in what is the most important thing for employers. Because remember, the LinkedIn is a very important recruiting tool, right? Right. What they're doing is that they are always reading whatever has been shared and it's public and it's just fine, right? And it's been about four years in a row that the number one skill that employers are looking when they want to recruit someone is creativity. At the same time, the same recruiters point out that it's the hardest one to find. So this is a very complicated gap because the truth is everybody has all the tools already within themselves to be creative. But why are those tools not being used? For a variety of reasons, people are tired. People sometimes complain this. There's another study that Adobe published and said, people said they have no time. They don't have time to think. 
A lot of people say I wasn't born with that. And so there are also mythologies around what creativity is and it's not. And so the beauty of this is that, you know, I set out to demystify the concept of creativity for everybody because it's not one God-given talent. Creativity is an amalgamation of skills and habits and attitudes, basically, right? So being a risk taker, having autonomy in critical thinking and avoiding groupthink and hurt mentality, for example, are parts of being creative, right? Right. Having empathy is part of being creative. Being curious is part of being creative. And so all these things really belong to all of us, but we don't put them in to practice because people believe that creativity is a thing that happens, is an occurrence, or is something that only Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Picasso had. And that is the proof that's not true since I was able to transition from a horrendous corporate attorney job to where I am today. I think anybody can do it. And I have had the, as you said, all of this research that I have done for the longest time, really, it's been 13 years researching this topic, is that I was able to put together all these habits and skills and tools after distilling the information that I found that each of these creative geniuses, supposedly geniuses, but honestly, they're ordinary people who wanted to work on the skills on a daily basis, right? Because all of us, if you think about it, can do it. Right. And you said something really briefly that just that, that really brings it home. And I think a lot of times like in the corporate environment, and I was part of this too, when we'd say, okay, we need to creatively solve a problem. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's bring everybody together in, in a conference room and let's brainstorm. Okay. Let's try to put all of our creative thinking into one two hour block. But what you just mentioned was some of the greatest artists, the greatest minds, the most creative people, they did it on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. It's that daily habit. Absolutely. And it is also... People tend to think that to be creative, you have to have a life where there is no routine. And that is also not true. You have to have a certain amount of routines in your life or rituals or bookended somewhat so that within that you can actually experiment and improvise. Because I mean, most people who are masters at something, whatever it is, whether it is being an accountant or being an assistant, you have already mastered, and I'm assuming you have already mastered what you are being you know, paid to do. So most people have that right. So the routines are very important. So if you're listening to this and you said, oh my God, my life is so boring because I just go from my house to my office or I'm working from home. And Well, those parameters are important because what that allows you is an ability to expand outside of it, right? You have to know the rules before you're going to start breaking them. And that is very important that within your parameters, you allow yourself moments of brilliance and improvisation 
and, you know, exuberance, if you will, that are not necessarily the ones that are expected. Because creativity is all about seeing things from different angles. It's about not repeating what everybody else is doing. It's about taking a stance that is unique to you. And I believe that all of us 7.5 billion or whatever it is that are populating the earth have something unique to say. Because I have a very particular upbringing. I had a very particular education. And I see the world from my own point of view, the same that you do with your own point of view, with your own experiences. And so people should not be so afraid of putting out what they've already collected in their lifetimes, because that's where creativity flourishes. And when we bring that into the corporate environment, I think that ties to something that you've talked about before around authenticity. And how authenticity, I think, is stifled a lot in a corporate environment because we don't allow that emotional safety for someone to be authentic and to bring their own perspective and to be able to speak up with their own ideas. Yes, and that is a terrible thing. And I think it's a bad inheritance of very strong and uh, hierarchical systems, right? But when people have these bureaucracies and pyramids, it lends itself for, it's almost like a monarchy, right? What the king says, it is what it is, and everybody under has to follow. And that is something that obviously has been challenged a lot by technology companies, including Google, that is known for having this emotional safety policy where people can express their opinions without fear of getting fired or demoted or things like that. And I actually quote another piece of study and data in the book about this emotional safety, this group of researchers from Wharton and the London School of Economics visited a variety of different tech companies. Actually, they were invited to find what was wrong with one of the companies. And after being there and asking a ton of questions to the employees, they found that they were lagging behind all the competitors because they didn't allow the management and the employees to actually freely express their ideas. And this is what happens. It's something cognitive and it has to do with the way that you absorb information. When People are having, for example, the brainstorming sessions that you mentioned before. And if you're only allowed to say the good things and you do not allow the people to say the bad things, you kill the entire creative process altogether. It's not just the first part when you were not allowed to say the bad things, but you kill the whole thing because that original phase where you say this is not right or I don't believe this can be right or whatever is an ideation phase. And that is a phase where people actually say whatever they want to think about the project or whatever it is that they have in front of them. And then those thoughts get refined. But if you just want to hear the good things, you're never going to be able to actually bring the true creative nature of the project forward. Right. And a lot of times I think those good things are really just maybe what the group or what leadership may consider as the good idea at that moment. Whereas sometimes like it's those other bizarre ideas, the other left field ideas that really can turn into something even better. Well, remember that there are a lot of people fear change and it's because our brains are very You know, this is also, it comes from an evolutionary theory that the limbic brain is the part that actually roots us as humans to what we know. And so every time 
change is presented, there is a threat, right? And so there was a threat with the internet. There is the threat with social media. So a lot of people didn't take this threat seriously when e-commerce became a thing and a lot of stores went down because of that, right? And so a lot of people didn't take the pandemic so seriously and they didn't want to adapt. And unfortunately, those businesses folded because they said, I'm never going to do a takeout. I'm never going to do a delivery, you know, whatever. So the point is that it is so important to consider the here and now and to allow the the bizarre ideas because that's what creativity is. If you keep doing what you're doing and you expect different results, this is very important, right? Like, I mean, I think that when you are in a corporate world, you have a lot of metrics that give you immediate feedback. Your sales, your revenues, right. whatever it is, your visitors, conversion rates, et cetera, right? If you see those numbers going down month after month and you continue doing the same thing over and over, that is the definition of insanity, right? It's not working right. out. Now, there is also moments where certain companies plateau and they're like, well, we've plateaued. And so do you want to stay there or you want to grow, right? Because that's the other thing is like, well, we have plateaued. We're sort of fine. We're not hiring or firing. So, but that's not necessarily the spirit of a business, right? I mean- It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. You can be stable, but you always want a little better, right? A little better- I mean, or a lot better is the ideal, but like, let's say you are okay with a little better, but you've plateaued for a long time. Okay. So usually the way out of that is to change things and to change things for the better and to do things differently. And you're always and constantly going to have to apply these ideas to whatever it is that you do. Because again, we live in a world always changing and you should be willing to change with it, not to take away the essence of what you do, but to really upgrade it, if you will, to every new demand and every new challenge and every new stage. And that is very, very important. Absolutely. And I think that the best creative minds, the most innovative minds, innovative companies are the ones that don't necessarily react to the change, but it's the ones that are constantly evolving that helps them get at the forefront of that change. Yeah. I mean, it's like sometimes you have to react and sometimes you have to be proactive with it. Right. And so there's not one way, you know, it'll be kind of counterproductive for me to say there's just one way to do something creative because then that would go against creativity. But I think that (laughs) you have uh, to open yourself up to the possibilities that one, what you are doing is not necessarily something that that is going to take you where you want to be. Number two is sometimes the tweaks are very small and it is all about having peripheral vision, right? I mean, sometimes you are so focused in what's in front of you, yet the solution is just like a 45 angle degree turn to be able to see what is happening on this other area. And also associative thinking is something that should be encouraged more everywhere. It's like, okay, how do you combine what exists already in your business with something else that it might be ancillary, it might be complementary. It might be something that is at the intersection of two industries. And those are usually places that people neglect to look at. And there is something that I mentioned throughout the book that this is not a 24-hour solution, right? 
No. It takes time and commitment. And nobody likes to hear this for some reason, but I would be lying otherwise. This, my right. book can really change your whole vision and can really help you maximize the power of your ideas for your profit and benefit. If you take the time to practice the exercises at the end of each chapter, to understand what the concepts mean and to really embrace them in your life. And that is for sure a way for people. I guarantee you that if you do all the exercises in the book, you're going to see extraordinary results. But that's the thing that the magic of this book and the teachings and the chapters only becomes alive when people are willing to do what's written on the pages. Otherwise, it's a very, very entertaining read. I mean, you've read the book, you know, it's really fun and keeps the readers engaged. But at the end of the day, where the magic happens is when you want to incorporate these things in your business or your career, whatever it is that you're doing for a living. Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience. I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with that audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. The last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, if I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com slash speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. I think what, what helps make that attainable, make it more easier for someone to be able to do is the fact that you don't have to spend a whole lot of time every day. No. Just like if you're learning a musical instrument or if you're learning a new sport, whatever you're doing to try to get better at something, it takes just a little bit of time each day consistently. So taking some of these exercises and doing those on a regular basis. Absolutely. And I think that that makes the whole thing less daunting, but it's wanting to be open because openness, as you know, somebody asked me the other day, is openness about taking drugs. It's like, no, not at all. I mean, like, I don't really do any drugs, but I'm very open to learning new ways of doing things. And so it's how do you actually receive the information and how do you process it? That makes all the difference, right? And right. this is the thing for ages, 
I guess the message has been think outside the box, right? And that's very cute, but it yeah. doesn't really do anything for anybody to say yeah. think outside the box. I mean, how do I think outside the box, right? What does that mean? How do I think outside the box? And so the book is for me, not only thinking outside the box, but it's a whole bag of tricks that can stimulate creative thinking and also materialize those ideas. Because one thing that I feel that a lot of creativity books do not do is they don't really tell the reader how to materialize those incredible ideas. Because one thing is the idea, because right, everybody can have a ton of ideas. It's how you actually bring them to the world. So I made sure that throughout the book, there is a thread of materializing ideas. But in particular, the section number three that is called Tools of the Trade yep. is a lot about, you know, how do I, we take them out of the head and into the world? And I think that is a, a very important component of all this is to think about how are you going to put this into practice in your business or career? How are you going to stand out from all the other employees that are vying for a promotion, people who want to get a raise? And how are you also going to convince upper management, let's say, that they have to hear your ideas or that the company is lagging because there isn't a lot of creative thinking allowed? And so I suggest that if you are in a place where your boss is not very open, give him my book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but you can talk about, you can also talk about what I said before about emotional safety and being able to express ideas freely. For the highest good of the company, at the end of the day, if you are in a job that you love, but you want to make it better and, you know, upper management sometimes can be rigid, then always remind them that this is for the better good of themselves. It's like it's right. for everybody's goals to get obtained. Absolutely. And I want to circle back to one of the things that you were talking about being open, you know, open to new ideas. And I think it's also being open to different perspectives. And that ties to one of the things that, that you talk about. One of the things I teach about as well is the value of empathy. So yes. how does empathy tie with being more creative? Well, empathy is such an important aspect of being creative because if you don't know what your customers want and how they think and how they feel or your audience, it's very hard to connect with them. And that is completely intertwined with the idea of creativity, right? Because you don't create for yourself. You create for the others. It's okay to create for yourself. I mean, a lot of musicians and artists and whatnot create for themselves. And that's fine, right? But if there's right. no, if nobody buys the art and if nobody listens to the song, then you just create it for yourself and that's it. The end of it, move on, right? I mean, or just like do it as a hobby. But if it's a business, the word business means it's making money. It's not a charity. It's not, you know, a not-for-profit. It's, it's something that requires customers. It requires people paying for what you're offering. So one thing that the whole digital world has taken away from people is the ability to empathize because you are not feeling... There is energy that flows between humans in in-person meetings that are cues 
the position of your body, the position of your face, you know, what right. you do and how you do it. So all those things have been lost because we are looking at ourselves. And that's the other thing, right? And all this Zoom meetings, you also have to see yourself. And a lot of people are just seeing themselves and not the other members of the meeting. And so that takes away empathy. It's not new, though. Remember that we've had entire generations, the younger millennials and Gen Z, who were born with social media and phones under their arms. And basically, that's how they interact. And that really obliterates empathy. So we have to be extraordinarily careful with all the effects that the wonderful things that technology has brought us also have the problem that they erode empathy. And if you are not able to put yourself on the shoes of your customers, clients, audience, et cetera, you're going to really have a hard time making that company shine or that business or whatever it is, you know? Absolutely right. We're talking about empathy a lot more today and around the need for that in the experience that we deliver to our customers, the experience that we deliver to our employees and each other. But one of the things that that I've heard you point out, and I don't think I ever realized this, was around Walt Disney and the creation of his parks. I've read a number of stories around what he wanted to do and what was in his mind, but I never really realized that his number one concern was about park goers around how they feel throughout the park, how they feel each interaction. It was. And you know, Disney's a company that I admire tremendously because so many decades it's remained constant and serious about the mission. In fact, Disney has had, I think, five CEOs in the whole history, oh, right. including Walt. That's not a lot of CEOs for a company as big and massive. And each one of the CEOs, I mean, the ones who sort of like were not necessarily aligned were fired, right? But like, right. why I'm making this point is because that's a brand and a business with all the acquisitions that they have done throughout the years that has been extremely serious about their mission. One of the missions is how people feel. And the other one is to keep families together. And, you know, again, like they have to adapt to the times and they own Hulu and Hulu shows the Kardashians. And I don't know how that keeps families together. But what I'm saying is, is you know. <laughs> it makes families feel better about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yes, potentially, yes. But the thing is that I didn't really mention this in the book, but if you look at, you know, what historians and biographers that were close to Disney and wrote books, his biography, when were able to shadow him and talk to him, Walt himself would go to the parks with these guys. Like he would like wear, I don't right. know, coats and like, I don't know, a, a, a hat. And he would do all the rides and see the faces of people at the end. That was the most important thing for him. So if he saw like bitter faces or faces of boredom or whatever, he knew that something had to be fixed on that ride. Because the parks at that time, Disney was not what it is today. Right? Disney at that time was characters, parks, merchandise, and movies. And it was not what it is today at all. Of course. Because the brightness is gigantic, right? But think about the guy who invented the whole thing, by the way, was a folk artist, not rich at all. Because people are going to say, oh, but he was white. And he was, no, 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 no. He was not rich at all. Yes, he was white, but he was not rich. This guy had absolutely nothing. So what he had was a desire to work very hard for people and to do the right thing for families and for empathy, right? Like he had this empathy. And it was a theme that permeated his life until the end. So when you think about other companies 
that thrive, like Apple, for example. Apple gets a lot of feedback from users and utilizes that in perfecting each one of his next products. You might think that it's far removed, uh, you know, but it's not. I mean, even Tim Cook has said that he receives emails from Apple users daily and he actually answers them. I'm not sure how in the world he's able to do this, but he is. And he has said that many times in several interviews. I also don't know how people get Tim Cook's email. If anybody has Tim Cook's email, let me know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a fundamental part of creativity, folks. It is. Don't live in your own isolated world because it just, it can really hurt the business. I think so. And to me, when we talk about thinking outside of the box, maybe that box is our own narrow perspective. And then being able to see and recognize all the other different perspectives around us and either recognizing the perspectives of what people around us need from us, but then recognizing their perspective on their ideas and what they've seen work in their own life. Yeah. And it's about about inviting that other point of view. And the more diverse your teams are, the better your business is going to run with the ideas, right? Because you have multiple perspectives of people who say, well, in my neighborhood, we did it this way. In my country, we did it this way. Variety and melting pot of views is radically important for creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship and the success of whatever it is you're doing. Right. Yeah. And and when you hear someone say, oh, what, you know, growing up or in my background or in this role, we did it this way. You may think I've never even thought about that way before. Let's try that. Yes. And then you have to be welcoming of those things. And sometimes you have to do it alone because I think creativity and the idea of perfecting or enhancing what you offer and or pivoting it starts with one. It starts with one person and then you actually bring that attitude to all that you do and you make it contagious and you make it exciting and you know you bring it to the table. And if you are listening to this and you're a manager and you have a team, you also have to be willing to listen to them and whether it is outlandish or not, Consider it. Consider the most outlandish ideas. Usually the right. greatest breakthroughs in history come from outlandish ideas that people thought it was crazy. And creative people are always going to be facing a lot of no's, a lot of rejections, because again, humans do not like change. And it's a threat to our systems as nature has created us, right? And especially after all the things that we've been through as humans, change seems unfathomable. I mean, it's like, I don't want any more change, please. You know, we've seen it all. Slow it down. But it is the only thing that will always be with you is change, change our circumstances, change of status. So it's a good thing to be, to remain open to change. That's it. Absolutely. And then, so we've talked about the value of creativity, why it's important, being open to it. And then you had talked earlier about your tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these like help you understand, okay, here's what you can do on a regular, consistent basis to grow your creativity muscle. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones that you talked about was the analog method. You know, so <laughs> like, like literally writing your ideas down with your own hand, pen, pencil, and paper. 
But to me, that seems like such an old fashioned concept, considering where we are today in 2022 with all the technology that we have. So why is that so valuable? So human beings before computers existed have been populating the earth for millions of years, right? And so writing as such is a thing of about 5,000 years. And there is a part of the brain called the reticular activating system that is how the brain focuses on an activity, right? And so when you, for example, are like focusing on a yellow car, right? And so you dream about the yellow car and then all you see is yellow cars, right? Because your reticular activating system has that job of like showing you the things that you have been focusing on, right? When people type, you do not activate the reticular activating system in the same way. And also... Typing is a mechanical activity that is a whole lot younger, whether it is typing on your computer or on the keyboard on your phone. And it doesn't have the same benefits. Now, when you take a piece of paper and a pen and you start jotting down your ideas, you have only one option, which is doing that, right? Like sometimes... When you are in front of a keyboard, you can be like, you turn your head around, you know, people, I mean, great typists don't even have to look at the computer. They don't, you know, they know what they're doing, right? And so that's right. when you take a pen and a, and, a, and a piece of paper, you have to have your head down because it's like, that's what I'm looking for, you know, to instill in people here. It's not like, oh, but I can write with my head. Yeah, but that's not the point. It's like, write with your head down and know what you're writing and continue doing it. So I also provide the data, which is a very interesting of this study that was conducted in Princeton for undergrads. And the students who actually wrote with a pen and paper scored way higher in every test and had a lot better processing of information than those who were typists, right? And there is another study that was done, I think it's the University of Virginia, I'm not sure. And this was done with kids and it was a very similar thing. And so the ones who were the most creative ones were the ones, I think they were measuring the brain activity with electrodes and whatnot. The kids who were writing down with pen and pencils and papers and, and whatever, those kids had a much higher activity in their brains than the ones who were typing. So we already have the data and I'm all for computers and efficiency. But if someone can really spend time every day writing down ideas, and if it's just 15 minutes or 10 minutes of freehand, that can really make a huge difference in your life. Oh, definitely. And I never really thought of it that way in regards to the fact that when you're typing, when you're looking at your phone, when you're looking at your laptop, your keyboard, and you're typing, you can still kind of multitask and still type out what you're trying to say. But when you're writing pen and actual paper, you've you've got to focus right there on it. Yes, and also there is... uh... I'm sure you've had this experience where you start writing down something and then more ideas come. It happens to most of us. So I guess that a lot of people feel a little lazy about the fact that they have to have a pen and a paper. But I think that the benefits outweigh is a hassle, if you will, of having to get grab a pen and write down your ideas. This is super, super important. So I, I really encourage you to try at home, nobody's going to get hurt. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 10, 15 minutes. 
There you go. Yeah. If every day, regularly on a consistent basis, you know, I'm assuming that we're saying that it's better to spend 10, 15 minutes a day writing than it is to spend two to three hours in one day of the week writing. Yes, because honestly, what you're trying to do is to just get ideas come out of your brain. If you're three hours writing, honestly, there is no benefit unless you are a student. Let's say you're a student and you're taking notes in a classroom. That's a very different story. But if you are a, a professional, here's why 10 to 15 minutes is the optimal time, because otherwise, First, you're too much in your head if you keep doing it. And second, there's a point where you have already maxed out what you can do in those 10, 15 minutes. And that's like lighting a match or lighting a fire right at the beginning. You get this big flame and then it sort of like dies down. And But if you do it consistently, you're going to see a lot of miracles happening with your ideas. Right. With your ideas. Yeah. And, and then being able to build on those. And I've got to say, you know, I think... Some of my favorite authors have talked about the fact that they that that's what they do. They spend, you know, 15, maybe 30 minutes a day, every day writing, and they carry around just like a tiny little notebook and a pen with them. And whenever another idea hits, they immediately write it down. Like they have something to actually literally write it down on. Absolutely. So for me, I would say that's probably one habit that anyone who's seeing or anyone who's listening to this today, that's one habit that you can take right now to grow your creativity muscle is to just spend 15 minutes a day writing, literal writing in a notebook. Yes. And do it like you don't really even have to have a specific prompt or anything. It's more like I actually give a lot of prompts in the book because people sometimes get stuck. But if you just do stream of consciousness, which is just writing down what comes out of your head. And I explained that also this was a technique that was popularized by the surrealist artists of the 1900s and the early 1900s because they were tinkering with the ideas that Freud was teaching at the time. This was a very fertile time in the ideas of psychoanalysis and dreams. And the, the surrealists lived in Paris they were super intrigued about Freud and the dreams and whatnot. So they thought if I wake up and I just write everything that just flows out of my head on a piece of paper, then I'm going to find a lot of what my dreams mean. Right. And uh, so that's how this whole kind of idea of writing things down for purposes of getting inside of your best ideas started with the surrealists in the 1900s, early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. There you go. Excellent. Well, Maria, last question for you. If you were to create a five-song soundtrack for How Creativity Rules the World, what songs would you include? Well, I would have the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction. (laughs) Yes, a big Stones fan. It's a lot about challenging the status quo and like not staying. Creativity is not staying with what's given, right? Right. Then I would do Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, because I love that song. And I also think it's about pursuing your dreams and not staying in that little world where he was, right? Like, it's like about a bigger life. Another one of my favorites. Have you been rifling through my vinyl collection over here? I have not, but I should <laughs> I should go and take a look. Then it'll be Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Oh. I love that combination of operatic music and, you know, the falsettos. Yeah. And the I think that song literally changed the 
whole landscape of how music is done. And I don't think there will ever be anybody like Freddie Mercury or anybody as creative as he was, honestly. Hopefully someday, but but so far, no. It'll be a different thing. And, and it's a song that still, you know, moves me and I love it. I think the other song will be Missy Elliott's Get Your Freak On. <laughs> wow. Very n- <laughs> nice pivot. Right? I mean, yeah. you want to have variety as again. Like, you know, creativity is about the combination of things that are not expected. So that would be the fourth song. And the last song would be Donna Summer, I Feel Love. Oh, very nice. You see? <laughs> yeah. They are all different. And they are all about expressing your individuality. And that's what I am trying to make people do with this book. And that's what it's all about. Well, Maria, thank you so much. I've learned so much just from speaking with you today. But where can people go to learn more? Well, my website is mariabrito.com. That's B-R-I-T-O.com. There are all sorts of forms you can fill out to send emails. Also, there are all the links to my social media. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The book is Whatever books are sold, it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble, it's on Books a Million. If you're in the South, it's on IndieBound Bookshop that benefits all the independent bookstores in the United States. And it's in Canada, the UK, Australia. It's around the world. So I guess Amazon is the easiest thing, but you're on the anti-Amazon, I understand. <laughs> you can go somewhere else to get it. It's still yeah. available somewhere else. There you go. No shortage of places to find the books. No, no. And thank you so much, Matt, for this opportunity and for your very thoughtful questions for reading and supporting the book. It's really, really my pleasure. Well, I'm on team innovation. I'm on team creativity. So I was excited to see the book come out and I was excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Maria Brito. So go and learn more from her at mariabrito.com and go check out how creativity rules the world. Of course, you can get it at any of your favorite places to buy books. Maria's lessons and her book are sure to help you discover and harness the power of your creativity. Hey, if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. It's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Joey Coleman. Joey is an award-winning speaker and a customer experience design expert. He's worked with hundreds of companies to help them deliver remarkable customer experiences while dramatically improving their profits. He's the co-host of the Experience This podcast along with Dan Gingas, who is a simple brand guest in episode 48. And Joey's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Never Lose a Customer Again. Joey and I talk about his lessons that'll help you turn one-time purchasers into lifelong customers, and that'll help you retain your best customers and turn them into raving fans. And the lessons are all from his first 100 days methodology. And the lessons are all from his first 100 days methodology. Spoiler alert. Customer loyalty isn't about focusing on marketing efforts or simply focusing on closing the sale. Customer loyalty is about focusing on the first 100 days after the sale and focusing on all the interactions the customer experiences. So go ahead and subscribe, 
you'll automatically get Joey's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.